Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. We're going to start the programme by talking about the week's big news story. Before I bring in Richie Forrestal from the Racing Post Island, I just want your opinion as someone who bets on a daily basis on horse racing. How big do you think the Charles Burns story is and how much do you think it will reverberate around the, the racing world? Should it reverberate around the racing world? I think, it's a, I think it's a very big story and I think it definitely should reverberate around the racing world. Um, you know, you have to have confidence in the betting product uh, to grow the sport. We talked a lot uh, on this show uh, about the uh, funding of racing and about how betting can fund racing. Uh, and, uh, you know, just, just anecdotally, I sometimes hear um, recreational football punters say that they hate this VAR and it's making them watch less games. Uh, and bet on less games, and and that and that's part of the rules of the thing. If you get something where you know there is rule breaking and it's seen to be allowed to carry on, uh, for sure that that puts people off of the game. And I, I I think you know putting aside the whole safety issue and all that kind of thing, just in terms of confidence in the betting product, if if you haven't got that, you people won't bet on the sport, and the funding of the sport will be in danger, and the whole. Uh, sport goes into danger. Yeah, it's, a, it's a massive story. OK, so let's wind back as we bring in Richard Forrestal from the Racing Post in Ireland, who's been tracking this story. Richard, good morning. Let's try and wind back. And just for those people who haven't really been following the case this week, just try and praise exactly what happened as best we can. Richie, over to you. This case from 2018, October 18, 2018, had unearthed basically that um, Viking Horde was administered um, a lot of sedative, ACP being the substance, and, and you'll remember that from the 1990s, Nick, when it came up in, in other cases with Avanti Express and Library Night and so on, um, and was laid accordingly, if you like, in that he was laid for large sums of money on three separate occasions, as it turns out, twice prior to, to Tremor as well in uh, Galway and Sedgefield. Um, I, look, I don't think there's much point in rehashing the the the, de the details of it at this stage, Nick. I think we all kind of know. Um, we've we've all been listening to it for the past week and reading about it and writing about it. Um, it's a very sad episode. It's um, on, on many levels, really. First of all, that it happened, that anyone would do it. Um, you look at the amount of sedative that was administered. And it just seems incredibly naive, really, on, on, on the administrator's part to think that they could administer as much as they did and get away with it. Um, there is, I suppose, one thing arising out of the report that I thought was interesting, that it, it, the report, in fairness to the IHRB, was very thorough. We're always giving out about them not giving thorough reports. It was very thorough. And from a place where they started, probably... Uh, 
on the back foot very much by not having had um, CCTV cameras at Tremor. They did a reasonable job. Their hands were tied in relation to the betting exchange and so on. But one thing I did find interesting that wasn't addressed at all, as far as I could tell, was the issue of whether Charles Burns noticed anything untoward about the horse before the race. Because you will know yourself, Nick, I think you're involved with horses. If you administer um, a mill or two of settling to a horse to clip him or to castrate him or whatever it is, um, you'll notice a very docile horse straight away. Um, and I didn't see that question addressed in the report at all, which I thought was a bit of an omission given what we're talking about here and the, the volume of sedative we're talking about. Um, it was 100 times over the, the legal limit, as we know, and you would imagine the horse would have been a fairly docile state, and the question wasn't reported on at least whether he was asked or not, I don't know, but did Charles Burns not notice that his horse, who he would know upside down and inside out, was more docile before the race? It's not a question you could expect maybe the jockey to answer because they're on for a very short period of time. They might not know the horse as well, and when you get on a horse, it will raise its, its blood anyway and get up a bit for a while. So that was one thing that I thought interesting, but the whole thing, Nick, it reflects badly on on racing in general, as we know. It's it's fodder um, for people who who don't believe the sport is is in any way straight anyway, um, and it reflects poorly on on the regulator as well. Um, you know, unfortunately, we've seen recently with Tremor as well as it happens in relation to the race distances when. The question was put to the regulator: Are they going to do anything about it? And they were very much, you know, it's fine. We're happy with the way it is. It'll be grand. And there was another element to this to this story because, as David Walsh again pointed out in the Sunday Times today, there was an incident at Punchestown five, six years ago um, in relation to Fox Rock, Ted Walsh's horse, when CCTV cameras were very much to the centre and there was no CCTV footage in the yard or around the yard and nothing was done about it subsequently, despite the fact that there was an allocation in the budget for it um, and we only have one track where the CCTV coverage is up to stand up to the full integrity standards in the country. That, that's Leopardstown. Tremor have put cameras in since. But again, it's a, there's an element of you're, it'll be OK and it's all a little bit Irish really, isn't it? It just doesn't look great. The, the one most worrying aspect of this case for me, Richie, and I, I wonder if you've done any further investigation into this, is that somebody who was licensed to go into those racecourse stables, and there is no conclusive evidence that it is Charles Burns or anyone associated with Charles Burns, which is why his six-month suspension is for being negligent rather than playing any active part in this. But somebody who is licensed to go into those racecourse stables at Tremor has administered a horse an enormous amount of a recognised tranquiliser and has thereby put not only the rider of that horse but also every other rider in that race in significant danger, I would say, of loss of life. Yeah, it's a huge deal and it's the point I made in, in my column this week. It's, it's basically an inside job. Now, anecdotally, you will hear, Nick, that it, it might be possible to access the yard. I've never done it. Anytime I've approached the door, I haven't got in, but I have. You will hear um, some people say that it's possible to get in. Um, you know, if, if the security guard isn't, isn't on his toes. But by the looks of it, you know, you know, you'd imagine on the basis of probability that it was someone who was accredited. So whether, as you say, Charles Burns or his son Cahill or someone else, it was someone accredited. And that's worrying, um, just the fact that someone would do it. But look, the whole thing, um, I don't know where, what's going to happen with the appeal, um, but... It's just disappointing, and, and, and it's another, an, another stick to beat the sport with. The thing I've said about the, the regulator, Nick, I've, I've written a column for 10 years. I just looked thinking about it last night before coming on here. And the one thing that has been 
consistent throughout that from the time I started writing a column with the Irish Independent was the questions around the regulator's um, ability to regulate the sport without fear or favour and to regulate it um, you know, in a fair and transparent way. And this, again, shows up shortcomings in that respect. You know, They just haven't stepped up to the mark here. Now, that's not to not to ignore the seriousness of the individual who did this. As you say, it's worrying. If you go back to the Avanti Express and the, the Lively Night cases and so on, they were not insider jobs. They were outsiders. The, the needlemen, as they were known at the time, were outsiders. This is different. It's someone inside who's decided to administer, administer it. But it's just very disappointing. As I say, we go back to the regulator, so I, I'm not taking any blame away from the people that did it, but we don't know who it is. But the bottom line is we're here nearly three, two and a half years or whatever after the event and we don't know who administered that substance and it was administered in, in large volume. So it's just disappointing. I think in fairness to the regulator, to give them their credit, there has been um, improvement over the past few years. The appointment of Dr Lynn Hillier as Chief Veterinary Officer was probably a good move. Um, they are catching more substances. We know they weren't catching much before when they were at the previous lab. They are catching more substances now and they're, they're able to do this. I mean, if this happened a few years ago, we don't even know if they would have identified the, identified the ACP because there was so much being missed with the previous lab. So there have been improvements, but they're still a long way from where they need to be. And you, you, at this stage, you know, they all seem to be chasing their tail, and that's not good enough. And, and you look to the top and you wonder if, 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 the, if the, the management of the whole thing could just be a bit stronger. So that's the, that's the doping side of the story, which is serious enough. Let's talk about the betting side of it, or the fact that this horse was mm. laid to lose significant amounts of money. But not just laid on Betfair Neil Channing, but laid through a white-label account conduit. Now. For those of you who've never heard of a white label account before, just explain what that is or was and just explain how it's been used. Okay, so uh, betting is obviously a multinational uh, sport and Betfair, uh, as the leading exchange, are a, a, a multinational conglomerate. Um, in India, for example, and my understanding is that when we talk about faraway places in this uh, story, we are talking about India. Uh, Betting is its kind of a grey area as to the legality of the whole thing. Uh, so there were a lot of illegal bookmakers over the years in India, uh, and some of their customers probably came to them a few years ago and said, well, I, I like the idea of having got this exchange thing. Uh, and Betfair uh, were able to um, give individuals in India, bookmakers generally, um, the opportunity to open up a white label. So. Uh, a, a, a website that mirrors Betfair, uh, customers can open an account with it um, and place bets, um, you know, in the same way as you would in the UK uh, using Betfair. So um, Betfair's connection is with that one guy, the, the uh, inverted commas bookmaker, or you might call him an agent. Um, and uh, the bookmaker stroke agent, uh, the owner of the white label, it's up to him to do know your customer on all of his customers. So he's supposed to um, have the identity of all of his customers and know exactly who he's dealing with, proof of funds, that kind of thing, all the sorts of uh, regulation that uh, Betfair customers have to go through uh, in this country. Um, now, it seems in this case uh, that the people that took money um, out of the horses in question um, did so uh, via a white label um, and 
that white label was a limited company that owned the, 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 the kind of skin of Betfair. Uh, and they possibly didn't have uh, the full details of who all of their customers are. So the BHA betting intelligence people, uh, they you know, a lot of people criticise Betfair over this thing and sort of say, oh, you know, the laying of horses is a lot easier now because of Betfair. Actually, it's a lot more transparent because of Betfair. The BHA, uh, at the finish of any horse race, uh, can immediately look and see who's bet and laid every horse if they want to. Anything suspicious comes up, uh, they can look and say, has there been unusual betting activity? Let's have a look at what's been done on Betfair. We can have a list of everyone that's placed a bet of more than £100 or whatever on the race uh, and see what's going on. Um, it's possible that it's harder for them to do that with white labels, which may be why these people decided to bet uh, via a white label. Um, it, it must be said also that um, I think it's since November last year, uh, it's no longer possible to lay horses on a white label of Betfair. Uh, you can only back horses. So um, the, the, the opportunity uh, may have been closed, although you might say that's a stable door after the horse has bolted. Yeah, are there, pardon the, the, the unfortunate pun, but are there positives to take out of this case insofar as there is now some racecourse security, albeit not fully adequate at, at, at racecourses in Ireland where there are cameras and also you are no longer allowed to, to lay horses via, via a white label? I mean, it's delayed reaction, but it may well be that this case has, has precipitated both of those things. Yeah, I think, I mean, you know, the, Tremor said that they uh, put in CCTV uh, without knowing that this case was ongoing. They, they, it was just something that they came and did. But I'm sure this case will lead to uh, more stringent measures in stable blocks around Ireland. Uh, and I think Betfair would say, and the BHA would say, that, you know, they're working very closely together. And, of course, you know, these legacy cases... It's a bit similar. We were talking about the regulation of bookmaking recently on the show and talking about um, the gambling review. Lots of times when you read stories in that about people losing fortunes and being encouraged to do so by bookmakers, addicted gamblers, that kind of thing, the bookmakers would say that stuff doesn't happen anymore. I think in this case it's, it's kind of similar. Like, uh, they, possibly the BHA might say that if this was today, uh, it's not possible for this to happen anymore. Uh, Richie, obviously there are still questions that remain unanswered. Who are the people who were, were laying this horse and they still have not been identified? Do you think we will ever get to the bottom of that? Is there a mechanism in place sufficient to get to the bottom of it? And do you believe that Betfair themselves still have questions to answer? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, there is a memorandum of understanding, as you know, Nick, between the regulators and the exchanges, and it's not worth the paper it's written on, as far as I can tell, because whenever these cases have come up before, they have not um, provided the sort of detail that, that's been required. I remember writing about this uh, four or five years ago in relation to the Faheen case before the 2016 champion hurdle, um, when Tim Brennan's vet was investigated by, the, uh, sorry, Willie Mullins' vet Tim Brennan was investigated by the BHA, there was f found to be no case to answer, and part of that was because they, you know, they couldn't access. Um, they, they don't have jurisdiction over a lot of these people. I mean, if you have accounts or you're a lay person anywhere unlicensed, they don't. The BHA or the IHRB don't have jurisdiction, um, and it was the same subsequently. You remember the Dublin Racing Festival a few years ago where there was horses laid, they will never go anywhere because 
you know, unless you're extremely um, poor at doing this kind of nefarious business in relation to gambling, whoever it is that's doing it, you're always going to have a layer of protection. And that's what these people have. They have layers of protection. That's effectively what the white labels are. I, I never heard of a white label until this week. Um, but once you keep them at arm's length, they're never going to be able to link you. So the memorandum of understanding is, is not worth the paper it's written on as far as I'm concerned. Um, the, the exchanges as of 2015 are, are licensed by the Irish government to trade here and they, they pay a commission on that basis. And at some stage, um, no, we know from previous history, Nick, that when the, the law of the land gets involved, these things are harder to pin down. We realise that. But at some stage, um, there's questions of fraud in relation to these things. And, and that's ultimately what happened here. Whoever backed biking hoard at Tremor, for example, was defrauded of their money. The horse was heavily sedated. That's fraud. No, no matter which way you cut it, that's what it is. So the, the law of the land gets involved and there's this... Um, kind of lack of detail emerging from the exchanges, maybe, maybe that's one way of looking at it. I mean, if they're going to be granted the license to trade in a particular state, then they have to come up with the goods as far as I'm concerned when it comes to identifying people related to these accounts, because it's too serious and it's undermining the integrity of the sport. Um, you know, you go back again 20 odd years ago, you could stop a horse if you wanted, but all you could, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't, um, manipulate the market that the way you can now by laying it whereas now you have the power to do that by the exchanges so the the, the lay of the land has changed completely and it, 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 the, the regulation hasn't still to this day caught up enough to, to legislate it in a way that you would you would look you'd be able to look at it and say well that's satisfactory. Uh, Neil do you agree with that? Not really I mean I, I, I feel like uh, we're in a world now where um, somebody at the BHA can click a button the second a race is finished and know exactly who's bet and laid every single horse to any substantial amount. Uh, I, I think they can drill down to, you know, literally one pound, but I think they only look at sort of a hundred pounds. Now, I, I think Richie's exactly right to say if, if it turns out that the person that's done the backing or laying isn't a licensed individual, um, they don't really have much jurisdiction over them. Uh, and non-licensed individuals may say, well, I don't even want to talk to you, I'm not cooperating with your investigation. Uh, but uh, they do have the names of the people. Whereas in olden days, uh, you know, racecourse bookmakers could be approached quite easily uh, and people could take money out of horses that they knew, you know, just weren't off or I'm not saying had had needles uh, put into them, but, uh, you know, that, that, and we'd never know. I mean, how would we ever know? At least now there is a paper trail. So it ha even, even if you say, yeah, they're a watchdog without much teeth, they, they still have information about who's betting what that wasn't available years ago. Yeah, but what, what if, it, as in this case, you've got the paper trail, but it leads you all the way to nowhere? You are, you've got all these different steps that take you well, somewhere. Well, I mean, but... obviously, they, they, you know... They... Well, obviously, in this case, you know, the, the, the problem is to do with the IHRB, isn't it? Because the, 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 the paper trail's useless if you can't... Nobody knows who stuck the needle in the horse, so... Um, and unless the trainer or the owner or something was the person with the name on the betting, uh, yeah, in this case, it, it hasn't really worked out. But I, I, at least you have some kind of paper trial. I mean, it, it is very difficult to get convictions in these things. And I, I appreciate 
Uh, I mean, I, it sort of feels like the people that have done this have been pretty stupid in some ways in that, I mean, a hundred times the dose just seems a bit crazy. Surely they didn't need to go that wild. And um, But, you know, like at the end of the day, it is quite hard to get convictions. The, the Gambling Act of 2005 uh, came in in 2007. Cheating in gambling became an offence. Uh, I think there's only one person has ever been convicted of it. Um, it's almost impossible to get a conviction on these things. Uh, Richie, how worried are you for the for the future of the sport based on this? Your colleague in the Racing Post, David Jennings, described it as a stench in the sport at the moment. I mean, uh, would you go that far? Oh yeah, the whole case stinks. There's no two ways about that. Um, but in general. Um, I would hope that this is a bit of a red herring. Um, we haven't seen this sort of incident in a long time. It seems like an isolated incident, hopefully. Um, if, there, if anyone is um, you know, administering ACP on a regular basis, you'd like to think it would be picked up. Um, but the, the, the sport has issues with regulation, and there's no two ways about it. Um, you go back to the, the, our own regulator here, and in Britain for that matter, um, and, and everything from the perception of how horses are, are, are run on their merits and the way there appears at times to be one law for the rich and one for the poor, you know, that, that, you know, the, the same sort of force isn't brought to bear with some of the untouchables, shall we say. All that sort of thing, to the outsider, looks shocking. And we're in, involved in it and we see what we see every day and we kind of become accustomed to it and we accept that, or, well, I don't accept it, but we see it, uh, we kind of accept it for what it is to some extent. But it looks bad in the overall scheme of things. And you need a strong regulator to deal with that and to, to be so that you can stand over the sport and say it's policed without fear or favour, it's done fairly and transparently, and we don't have that at the moment. We need stronger regulators. And I, I, I speak for England as well, and that's called Britain. I don't think the regulation of the sport is up to scratch in either country. I think they need to be stronger. And it's a difficult job. Regulators shouldn't be liked. Um, but that's the way it is. And I don't feel... When, when you see Paul Kimmage, as you know, lately, and David Walsh picking up, so, picking up on so many aspects of it, you know, those guys know what they're doing. And, and they're picking up on legitimate cases. Fair enough, some of it is historic. Um, and there's some, maybe some bit of reassurance in that, that a lot of the stuff they're picking up on is historic and it's not so much new or anything they've unearthed. So there may be some reassurance there. But the points they're making are valid points and the sport needs to brush up its act in Ireland and in Britain. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel, Dubai. And time now to reflect on some wonderful performances around the country yesterday. None better than that posted by First Flow at Ascot in the Clarence House Chase. Before I speak to First Flow's trainer Kim Bailey, I must pass on the news just in that Thurless, I'm afraid, has failed its inspection and will not take place this afternoon. There will be no racing at Thurless this afternoon. It was quite amazing that we got all three domestic fixtures to go ahead yesterday in Britain at Asker and at Haydock and at Taunton. So let's say a very warm welcome and a, a massive well done to Kim Bailey on the success of First Flow in the Clarence House chase. Uh, Kim, I'd imagine there was a, a quiet, demure, restrained celebration last night. Um, yeah, I think that's the right way to describe it, Nick. And um, under normal circumstances, for a grade one, I would have taken all my staff out for a large drink and, and uh, let them enjoy the evening as much as I might have done later on. But sadly, it wasn't to be. 
But um, I think they all understand perfectly well that I'm really appreciative of what they've done. You're somebody that we, we all go to regularly because you're, you know, you're very approachable, easy to talk to, always willing to talk about your horses. In the lead up to yesterday, there was a certain irony in that it seems that nobody wanted to talk about First Flow at all. Was that irony lost on you? Um, it was a strange one. Actually, I felt that actually I had more publicity through it than I possibly thought I might get. Because I had, obviously, Tom Stanley from doing a thing on Matchbook. A couple of other people rang me up about it, and uh, that was about it, really. Um, strangely enough, I mean, you know, we went into the race yesterday with five wins under our belts, a progressive horse, um, not really sure where we were. And, uh, you know, I rang Tony Solomons, his owner, during the week, and I said, we're definitely going to run on Saturday. Um, and yesterday morning, he rang me, having looked at the paper, and said, why on earth are we running in this race? We've got no chance. And I said, Tony, we have to find out. You know, it's all very well going for a handicap, but we have to find out. Um, and, uh, you know, the horse deserved to go yesterday. And I'm, it's nice to go under the radar rather than over the top of it, if you understand where I'm coming from. Definitely, definitely understand where you're coming from. I just want to, to talk about the owner, Tony Solomons, because I was reading today that he is now in his 90s. He's been, a, he's been an owner with you for right since the beginning, hasn't he? Or a long time. Um, he was with me my second, yeah, my second season. So he's been with me for, well, as I say, I'm amazed he's 90. He should be about 40, really. But um, <laughs> it feels, you know, time flies very quickly, doesn't it? And, uh, you know, Tony's been with me, most supportive owner I think I've ever had, really. And uh, to give you some sort of idea what a man he is, I, I bought a horse some years ago in France for him. And uh, um, the horse arrived. And two days later, we turned him out in the field. And the horse, unfortunately, was hit with a thunderstorm. And not that the thunderstorm hit him, but I mean, he got around the field and, and, and charged up the gate. And the gate was full of mud and he slipped into, into the gate. And, and unfortunately, he injured himself and had to be put down. And I couldn't get hold of Tony. And I knew he was at Ascot. So I drove to Ascot on King George Day. And the first thing I said to him um, was, hi, Tony. He said to me, how's my new horse? I said, I'm, you're not going to believe this. But unfortunately, he's, uh, he was killed this morning. And uh, he said, Kim, that's awful. I said, well, you, you haven't received the bill. You haven't seen the horse. You haven't seen anything. He said, Kim, don't worry, it's not your fault. Please replace him. And I sold him half share in Harry Topper. So, Harry, yeah, he deserved, he deserved his big win yesterday. The Harry Topper went on to be a, a wonderful horse. And now he's got, you know, dare I say, an, an even better one. Uh, th that was a, a really mesmerising performance as well. There was something incredibly exhilarating about it. When David Bass started to engage down the back, what, what were you thinking watching on in the stand? Um... Uh, probably I was thinking he's an effing idiot, um, excuse my language, I thought what on earth is he doing? Um, but you know, I've known David for long enough and I love him riding my horses because at the end of it he does the unpredictable very well. Um, and he had utter faith in the horse and you know, in the paddock we both said well the ground's going to be too quick for him. You know, and I said to him the last thing, I said the last best performance of the horse's career was at Ascot on, on this sort of ground. So you know, who knows, um, just go for it and see what happens. Um, and uh, we, neither of us expected to win. Uh, but no, we did hope for a very big race, and we thought if we finished third, we'd be thrilled. But, you know, he, he did things we'd never seen him do before, and um, jump and gallop. We knew he'd stay. Um, I've always said he's the toughest horse I've ever come across, and he'd run for a brick wall for you. Um, and yesterday he did. But having said that, and I know he's had plenty of experience, you have, you have minded him a little bit. You haven't put him in the heat of grade one competition too many times in his life. And was that a conscious decision to try and, to try and nurture him to this point? 
Well, do you know, I'm a great believer in fate and funny things happen in your life. And, and this horse I bought from Kerry Fanshawe and Robert Fanshawe as, as a four-year-old and, and, um, and we saw him working in Lambourne and uh, Tony had asked me to buy a horse for him. Um, and I thought, well, fine, this will do the job. Um, we ran him in a couple of bumpers, uh, ran him a few times over hurdles. He had a very soft ground season, his first season over hurdles, and he ended up winning that race at uh, Haydock yesterday as a novice. And, you know, he went to Cheltenham with a fancy chance and, and probably shouldn't have gone there because the ground had gone against him. But we were being a little bit careful and stupid, really, because we felt it was Tony Solomon who was keen. He didn't think he'd ever have a run at Cheltenham again. Um, so that was a mistake. And the following season, which was going to be his novice chase career, um, we were due to run him at Hereford first time out, and he had a dirty track wash the day before, so never ran. And the rest of that season, the ground was good, good to firm, so he never ran him. And Tony was unbelievably supportive and said, look, you know, I know that I've got faith in you, and, and I believe in the horse. Let's be patient. Um, we never ran him over fences. We finally ran him once more on the Imperial Cup at Sandown, because that was the only time we found soft, heavy ground. And he ran very well to finish fifth. And in hindsight, of course, that's given the, the horse 12 months to really mature and fill out. And of course, last season he came through and ran a couple of times at Ascot early on because Tony could get to Ascot. And um, he progressed all season to win his last four races very, very comfortably. Um, I know we were pot hunting, but he was doing it on, we were doing it on purpose. We wanted to go and see whether we can get him going forward. And this year we started off um, and his performance at Ascot first time, I, I thought was almost more stunning than yesterday because uh, he came from behind, which is something we never thought he could do. Um, and his jump at the last that day was um, a, certainly a do or die moment from David, which he produced again on numerous occasions yesterday. You know, if he got it wrong, they had a roll past the winning post, not um, gallop past it. Um, so, you know, patience has, has been put in my hand by the fact that we've um, had circumstances that give him time. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel Dubai. Let's um, talk a little bit about some of the other um, big races yesterday. Perhaps we'll touch on the, the big hurdle race at, at Haydock, which really revolves around what you think it told you about Bouverdere and whether you think that he is still a horse that's going to be lining up at the, at the top table. Yeah, I mean, obviously he's been off a long time. Um, and um, Don Donald's horse uh, got, got a bit of a jump on him, didn't he? And uh, I don't know whether it told us that much. It told us that he's still got four legs and can run a bit, but he, he, he was odds on for the race. He was a little bit uncertain in the market. I think, uh, you know, on form, he sort of deserved to be quite a bit shorter. So I think there was a feeling that he would possibly slightly need the run and, that makes sense, you know, it'd been off a long time. Um, yeah, I, it was a bit of a nothing run, wasn't it, really? I, I did, uh, you wouldn't be hugely enthusiastic about his champion hurdle prospects after that, but uh, uh, but it wasn't a disaster. I'd imagine Nicky Henderson will probably say, you know, he was quite happy to get it back on the course and uh, it'll come on a lot for the run and blah, blah, blah. Neil, we're just getting a, a little bit of a, an echo there. If you've got your TV up or anything like that, I, I feel like oh, a, I feel like one sorry. of those late-night radio DJs, and you're a you... first-time caller. Hi, uh, Neil. <laughs> yeah, I'm a first-time caller. Yeah, can you turn your radio down? Yeah. Oh, Disaster. He's done it. Sorry. Nice you did one. come no. back to me rather <laughs> suddenly. Sorry, sorry, Neil. Sorry. I'm looking forward to trying to do talking yeah, points later. That's terrible. Be fun. 
That should be fun. <laughs> right, that was, that was Bouva Dare. A very good uh, ride from Sean Quinlan on Navajo Pass. We're going to talk about Royal Pagai because we touched on it with Kim a little bit earlier in the programme. We talked to you about it as well. You said that you felt that he was a genuine Gold Cup contender, but you didn't fancy taking the 12 to 1. Yeah, I mean, he's, he, he's, he definitely is a Gold Cup contender, and he, you know, the horse is still improving. And why would you not want to run in the Gold Cup, I think? I, I don't know what Joe's going to say later, but uh, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think the Gold Cup's looking quite warm, actually, and there's a few I like in it. Um, I'm a, I'm, I like the Henry de Bromhead horses. I, I like your horse, Nick, as well, particularly our Blutard. But uh, um, no, I mean, th this was a hugely impressive performance. Uh, but the horse will have to improve again to win a Gold Cup. So I, I don't know, which can happen. I, I wish he was my horse, Aplutar. Uh, but I do think he's got an excellent chance in the, in the Gold Cup, even though he's not running between now and then. I mean, it, it is nice to see some some more names on the on the cast list, isn't it? And actually, this horse, and I, I, I put this to Joe Chambers in a minute, this horse come Tuesday could end up being not far off being the highest rated staying chaser in Britain because he's going to go up to around 170. Yeah, yeah, which of course puts him right in the Gold Cup picture, yeah. Um, yeah, the Gold, the Gold Cup really looks good this year and, and uh, the Ryanair looks very competitive as well, so... Um, I don't know. I'm imagining Joe will just say they're going to the Gold Cup. Well, he's he's with us now, racing manager to Rich Ritchie, uh, Joe Chambers. Joe, that was a that was a pleasure to watch yesterday. Is the horse okay this morning? Yeah, no bad news anyway to report, Nick. Uh, that's excellent. It was all good news yesterday. Now he conceded a lot of weight to horses, admittedly significantly is inferior, but it was impressive. Do you just have to go for gold now? I think it would have been great if the two Sams had um, uh, been able to complete the course or turn up and, and complete the course. I think we'd have learned an awful lot more about the substance of the form than, than perhaps we have. But, um, you know, we put him in the Gold Cup uh, opportunistically uh, at the time because uh, it was closing when the travel ban was coming in and we didn't, you know, we just thought that for the sake of the initial entry fee, we can always take him out at the next forfeit stage on February the 9th. It's, if his next run after Kempton didn't go according to plan, and um, but uh, I guess we'll, um, we'll we'll be leaving him in us, and we'll leave him in the in the novice races that he's in as well. I mean, the only options really for him are the Gold Cup, the race formerly known as the the RSA Chase, the three mile novice chase, and the three mile six furlong novice chase, which may or may not be ridden by amateur riders. Possibly not the way things are yeah. at the moment. I, uh, you're not really going to run him in the National Hunt Chase, are you? A horse as good as that. Ah, look, let's see what the handicapper says on Tuesday. I think he's going to tell us an awful lot um, as to what the substance of the form is. And you know, we we thought we got fairly hammered after Kempton, and you know, he he went not once but twice in uh, in applying a penalty with us. Um, uh, so we'll see. But I, I think you know, the, are we likely? You know, all being well, should should Monkfish turn up in the the, the festival chase? Are we likely to run two in that race? Probably not. I think Susanna's had 88 runners at Cheltenham and 67 of them have, have been a sole representative. Uh, so it's not really our MO to, to run two into one race. So, But, you know, there's a, eight weeks to go and a lot of water to flow under the bridge. And we'll see what the ground is like um, closer to the time and, and weigh it up from there. But certainly if the handicapper puts him into the upper echelon to the 160s, well, then it kind of puts him um, right bang in the frame of, um, of the season three-mile chasers, I think. 
And if, if Monkfish and Royal Pagai's trainers both wanted to run in the, in the same race, I'm guessing Monkfish would have first dibs in that festival chase, that he's got priority. Oh, we'll see. We'll have a conversation. We haven't even... We haven't even we, this wasn't even a realistic um, conversation three weeks ago, never mind six weeks ago. So, you know, he has to come through his trials and um, uh, an important race in its own right at the Dublin Racing Festival. And it'll be a lovely problem to have. But what we won't do is is make commitments this far out. We've burnt ourselves in the past doing that. So we will um, we'll take our time and, uh, and keep the options open. But, uh, you know, hopefully the horses will tell us what the direction of travel is. And did it occur to you at any point after the race yesterday that you could land up with the uh, just about the highest rated staying chaser in training in Britain? Yeah, um, you know, I was just looking through the ratings last night as a result. And, there, you know, if he gets nine or ten pounds into 165, 166 territory, you know, you'll be able to count on one hand those three mile chasers that are rated higher than him. So. Uh, I know he's a novice, but it is his third season as a novice. And, you know, yesterday was his 11th chase. I think Champ has had three or four, you know, just uh, as a comparator. So, you know, he, he did have 10 races in his first 11 months of racing as a three- and four-year-old. And that probably contributed to why it's taken him that long to, to acclimatize and maybe kind of just settle down and, and fill out his frame because he is a fine, strong horse. So... That's probably a, a contributory factor as to why we've had the improvement this year after an interrupted campaign last year because of the pandemic. But certainly looking at it objectively at the moment, you wouldn't put anybody off backing him for the Gold Cup. I think there's none run or no bet out there, Nick, is there? If you want to talk <laughs> specifically about a bet, I would, I would probably point people in that direction. All right. Um, Joe, sadly, Thurless is off today, so uh, I was going to ask you about Animix. Where's, what's, the, what's the plan the alternative plan for that horse? Yeah, a bit disappointing. Hopefully to get rescheduled for uh, for midweek or maybe the week after. I think uh, I think he ran very well over two miles behind Shaq and Persuade Christmas. And I think an intermediate trip and, and maybe in time three miles would suit him very well. But he certainly seems to be a horse that's um, just coming forward and improving uh, improving with racing now that his, his earlier growing pains when he was favoured for what felt like about 10 supreme novices in a row uh, seemed to have gotten out of the way. And I'm not going to do a stable tour, don't worry, but just a bit of news on some of the big guns. Chacan Poursois, is he all set for, the, for the, the chase he won last year in the, in the Dublin Racing Festival? Yeah, I spoke to Willie on Wednesday or Thursday, I think it was, one of the two days, and he's all good, and the plan will be to go to the Dublin Racing Festival with him. Will, will he be in a creature of habit? We'll probably run Min in the same race again and point him towards the Ryanair. Uh, but yeah, no, no, no bad news to report on either of those two fronts. Sharjah, um, if Patrick can't ride him in the champion hurdle, who do you imagine will? Absolutely no idea. Uh, okay. don't for, but, but don't forget Saldier is all I would say. Don't forget Saldier, excellent. So he's coming back and is in good nick? Yes, he is. We were delighted with his run. He was a little bit fresh, a little bit keen, but I thought he jumped brilliantly. And uh, every day he's sound is, is a good day, and I think he'll be the one that will continue to improve through the season. And everyone watching is screaming for Heen at the TV, so I will, I will ask you the same question. Back in the yard, got a lovely video from Willie on Thursday. He looks strong uh, with John Codd. He's uh, from his earlier season injury, which Willie made everybody aware of. So we'll just take it day by day with him and try and build him back up and see where we get to. And it's a solid season, isn't it? It's, it's shaping up really nicely for, for Susanna's horses. Yeah, it, it's been great. The open horses have been doing very well. And, you know, we've got a plethora of younger novices that, for one reason or another, just haven't all hit the track or, 
or when they did, they were um, a little bit more green and free, such as Grand Bornand and Cork, than we expected. So we're on the back foot a little bit with our novices, but we've uh, we've got you know quite a significant few to come out yet. Uh, but the open horses and the uh, the experienced ones are, are holding their own and keeping the flag flying for us, uh, as is Benicia, who delighted for yesterday. And uh, and just a word for Charlie Deutsch, who you know I guess it's the tax of being a stable jockey had to go to Ascot for the Grade One. Uh, but I'm sure he was gutted, but he'll get his day again, hopefully. And would, he, would you anticipate Charlie will be back on the horse next time? Yeah, well, no reason why not. No, he's Venetia's stable jockey. We leave all that to her. But, um, you know, when, when it became apparent earlier in the week that she was going to have three or four runners, I think it was, at Ascot yesterday, we made a fairly quick decision as to who would step in. Luck on Sunday. Proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel Dubai. Welcome back. You're watching Luck on Sunday, and we draw the programme to a close by checking in with a jockey who's made a, a really important contribution to this season with an excellent comeback. It, it began before last season, but it's really blossomed now with victories on York Hill in the rehearsal chase and see you at midnight in the veterans' final at Sandown. Of course, in his first incarnation as a rider, he famously won the Grand National at 66-1 to 1 on Sue and Harvey Smith's Aurora's Encore, and he joins me now. Ryan Mania, very good morning. Good morning, Nick. How are you? I'm very well. Uh, more importantly, given the trials and tribulations that you've been through through the last four or five years, how are you and how do you feel about your, your sort of new career, if you like, the next phase of your career? Um, I feel absolutely brilliant. Um, coming, coming back has, has gone really, really well. And I can't thank owners, trainers, um, you know, my agent enough for, for making it all happen. So wind it back for us. You'd won the Grand National on, on Aurora's Encore, 66 to 1. You were at the top of your game. You were a widely respected rider. What happened next? Um, I had real issues with my weight. Uh, I was waking up a living stone every morning and having to sweat off seven pounds. And it really, really gets to you mentally. Um, he sort of saw no way out. And I, th I think the only thing I think I could do was was give up and, and, and I realized that that was the wrong thing to do now but at the time it was it felt like my only option uh, you say you say that really affects you mentally I've talked to a number of jockeys who've, who've struggled with their weight and they say that you know when they're when they're having to waste so aggressively and, and get the weight down each and every day either by hot baths or saunas or running in sweatsuits you know, by the time they would actually get to the race course their their fuse was about this long is that is that how you found it yeah, I just I felt mentally drained, and as I say, I, I didn't see any way I could improve the situation, and it was it was really really difficult, and I didn't really like the person that I was becoming. I was grouchy and sort of shut myself away from the world a little bit, um, and it wasn't really very nice. And so, thankfully, I, it, it didn't last very long, and I, I gave up. But as I say, it was the wrong thing that. The best thing I could have done was actually seek help and advice, and, and that's my major regret in, in not doing that. I mean, we know that this has, had a, this has had a good ending. When you were away from the sport, r remind us what you were, what you were doing when you, when you were completely out of racing. Um, I was, I was uh, looking after foxhounds, so uh, working in, in, in hunting. Um, it, was, it was a natural progression. It was something that I enjoyed as a hobby, and, and it was never, never going to be a long-term thing, but it was... It was something that filled a void at the, at the time. It was something very easy to, to get, get into. 
but what it did do is allow me to take a step back from from life a little bit and i was able to get married start a family and without giving up but that probably wouldn't have happened because as i say i was being a bit of a a miserable um, person and um, no one would have wanted to have married that. But luckily you were able to take a step back and you were able to get married and, and, and start a family. Was, did you just feel that there was something missing? Did, you know, ha remembering all the good times in the saddle, was that, was that nagging away at you during that time? Yeah, I think it was always going. To, I was always going to wonder what if if I'd kept riding, what what would have happened, uh, what level could I have got to, could I have, you know, was I good enough? And so there was always something. I rode in a charity race a couple of years after I retired, and I thought then I really need to go back, and I felt as though I wanted to go back, but at the timing just wasn't right. And I was very lucky that Sandy Thompson offered me an assistant trainer's job. Um, a couple of years after that, and I saw that as my opportunity to, to really try and get my weight under control and give it another go. And so you went into that assistant trainer's job with it already sort of half in your mind that if this went well, you could be back in the saddle. Yeah, I remember saying to, to my wife that once I got once I got the job and said that I really want to give it a go, she she told me I was mad, but obviously supported me anyway. And um, I was, uh, I, f I found a dietitian, lost the weight very healthily, and um, luckily it all came off, and, and here we are. And uh, you, you say it as though, as though it was kind of obvious that if you'd seen a dietitian and approached it like that in the first instance, it, it would have all worked. But does that, does that underplay the hard work that you've had to put into to managing this yourself? Uh, yeah, it, it, it did happen really easily. Once I saw the dietitian and he educates you and explains things that, that I, I didn't know before, um, it is actually a lot easier to, to maintain my weight. Um, you know, when I was struggling back, back in the day, really, I, I saw no way out. I didn't know how to control my weight. I didn't know what I was doing right and what I was doing wrong. And, and I'll have a real understanding of it. Um, it does require a lot of work. You know, I can't just eat what I want and, and not do any exercise, but it's, it's something that I'm willing to do. And the, the support I have from my family is, is amazing. And, and ultimately, that's, that's why I do what I'm doing. And that's why I've came back to, to, to make them proud and, and to support them. Just, just above your, uh, your shoulder there, there's, there's the picture of you in the silks of Aurora's Encore after that famous victory in the, in the Grand National. Tell me about how Sue and Harvey Smith have, have supported you through the last few years. Uh, well, when I, when I did retire, um, I went down to see them to firstly apologise for, for leaving them in the lurch at that time of the year, because it was November, just coming into a busy time. And they, they said then that the, the door would always be open, um, you know, don't be a stranger. And, you know, four years on and I've made a comeback and, you know, I thought they'll, oh, they'll not want to see me back. But here we are, I'm managing to, to pick up some rides for them and they've been absolutely true to the word. You know, there's probably um, no more loyal people in racing than, than those two. And just to have have their approval that you're, you've came back and you're, you're doing, doing the right thing has, has meant the world to me. Uh, just watching you celebrate after your, your national win, you seemed to be enjoying it at the time and I remember doing quite a bit of media work with you the year after and you, and you did seem to appreciate it. When you look back on it now, is there a greater depth of appreciation for what you achieved that day? 
I, th I think I still don't believe that it's happened, Nick, to be honest. It's, um, it, it feels so, so long ago now, and at the time, I don't think I def I don't think I absolutely appreciated what what had just happened. I was I was a young lad, and you you sort of you take it as it comes, but I, I definitely didn't appreciate it at, at the time for for what it really was. And so, are these comeback victories? And you've pulled off two incredible wins this season. Are they, in some respects, even sweeter than that? Yeah, definitely. See, see you at midnight's win at Sandown was was one that's it's that that was just amazing. Um, for him to come out of retirement the same time as I did and to to win a race, a nice race like that. Um, I don't think I, I've ever. That's the first time I've actually celebrated um, crossing the the winning line. Um, I was punching the air. I've never really done that before because it, it meant it meant so much and um, it was it was an amazing feeling and it and it again it just makes you. Feel like you've done the right thing in coming back and and um, come out of retirement. What makes this horse so popular and so special and so treasured by the people that are closest to him? Um, I, I don't really know. I think his his way of going. You know, he likes to he likes to bowl along, make the running, and he, he really is just a, a tough, genuine old warrior. Um, obviously, the story of him having to retire due to injury and then you know. Told that he would never run again, and then coming back, really makes the the, the story even better. And now he's he's 13 year old, and he he's, he feels he feels like a, a nine year old. It's it's unreal, you know, how Sandy's managed to nurture him back to full health and and go and win a big race. Well, two big races. He he had a nice performance at Carlisle in the veterans race that uh, last season before COVID, and it's just he's just a real. He gives you everything, um, wears his heart on his sleeve, and he's, he, he's, just, he's just an unbelievable animal. And how is he? And are we going to see him again soon? I am, I'm hoping so. Sandy mentioned running him in the Midlands National, but I would think that he would maybe need a run before that, but I, I haven't spoken to him as, in regards to his plans. But he's, he's very well at home, and he's came out of his race at Sandown perfectly well, which is, um, which is a great, great thing. And if that was a... A wonderful, heartwarming triumph. You, you pulled off one of the, the upsets of the season, a sensational upset, because a horse that we'd all, we'd all consigned to the, to the um, history books as a complete nutcase, uh, York Hill, who, who came out and won the rehearsal chase. I mean, can you work out how that happened? Yeah, absolutely not. Um, <laughs> before he ran at Aintree, the, the, the time, time before, he went into the race feeling well, looking well. Travelled through the race and just just didn't finish. And we obviously we sort of know now that that's maybe just just him. He's just a bit temperamental. And what what happened at Newcastle was he basically took off with me for three miles. And um, it was it was the owner Dave Armstrong's plan to to bowl along in front, you know, because he usually drops in and trying to get him settled. And he said no, just let him roll on, and it and it worked. And since since then he's been really well at home and and raring to go and not sh not 100 sure where he's going to go next. He's entered in the sky bet uh, next weekend. Whether he goes there or not, I don't know. But um, he's certainly a very tricky but obviously very talented horse. And I said after the rehearsal that day that I, oh God, I would have loved loved to have ridden him back in the day when he was winning Grade Ones. He would because he gave me an unbelievable feeling and you know just such power and. 
such ability in there. It's just just managing to get it out of him. And well, I, I conducted a very long interview with Sandy after after a See You at Midnight's win at Sandown, and I said these were the these were the first two great acts. Is there a third act? Is the what's the final part of this amazing Thompson training trilogy? And he says he's got it, and he. We eventually got it out of him that it was it was Bell's Hill and that he was going to win the Grand National and I, I, I sort of thought that if if that was the case and it did happen and you were the man who rode him, that would just be perfect symmetry. Has that has that crossed your mind? <laughs> well, I'd be lying if I said it hadn't. But you know we're a long way off um, entry and uh, Bell's Hill still needs to get there and. Um, you know, we, we don't really know if, you know, we're, it's difficult to get these old horses back to form and we don't know if he's going to be there yet. So we've got a long way to go, but you, you, you can but dream. Um, I never never could have dreamt that I'd, I'd win it once. So winning it again would be pretty unbelievable. Just tell me, Ryan, if you can, the difference between Ryan Mania driving to the races in 2012, 2013 and, and, and Ryan Mania driving to, to the race course to take a ride now in, in 2021. Um, a completely different person. Um, I have an amazing wife, amazing kids. Uh, they they are ultimately what keeps me grounded and keeps me happy. And I just I go to the races with a smile on my face, just absolutely loving it. Whereas before, I you know could have taken it or leave it. Leave it. You know, I was was wasn't in a good place. And and now I'm absolutely loving what's what's going on. And whether it's a, a good horse, a bad horse, an indifferent horse and a big race or a small race, I just, just love going and, and enjoying it. And long may it continue. And as long as I can keep owners and trainers happy, then, then, then that's the main thing. And now if you, if you do keep yourself mentally and physically in good shape, a, a jump jockey's career without wishing to tempt fate can, can last a you know, significant period of, period of time. Yeah, it can though. As, as I say, the nutrition and um, the, the balance of nutrition and exercise has moved on so so much, even since I retired, that that it does prolong your career. And and hopefully, I can at, at least get to 40. I'm 32 now. I've got eight years. Um, that's my first goal: is to get to 40 and and then see what happens after that. But you know, injury dependent. Hopefully, I can maybe get a little bit longer, um, so long as people are still still giving me rides and still wanting to use me when I'm when I'm an old man. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albastiet Cruel Dubai.